1: Hello and welcome to show 100 of the Political Party Podcast. Well, I thought it was going to be show 100 until an eagle eyed listener emailed me to say that years ago, two episodes were labeled as show 26. I've been building up to show 100 for years. Actually, this turns out to be Show 101, but what better way for a show that mocks the uh, spending commitments and the mistakes of politicians to get its own figures wrong? It is only fitting in the area in which we live that this should be the case. So this is Show 101, and in a way that's fitting because uh, I'm joined today by John McTernan, and we talk about a number of things that I'm sure actually he would like to place into Room 101. So this is uh, a, a wonderful parallel. I should say at the start of the show, John is a friend of mine. I've known him for many years. Is. he's a fascinating individual, I've always been thinking about when the right time to get him on would be, and just almost as a treat to myself, I wanted to pick his brains on this hundredth, hundred 101st episode, because he is uniquely talented, and has worked for various political leaders, Jim Murphy, Julia Gillard, Tony Blair, and has advised political parties all over the globe, this conversation, um, now even as a mate, i talked to him about some of this stuff before, but never in this way, he was involved in the Cash for Honours um, investigation was interviewed twice under caution and we talk about that in detail and it is a phenomenal amount, I mean just his experience, his, um, his reflections on it are amazing, so that is I didn't want to stay on it too long because it is obviously a harrowing experience for him but it's just such a good conversation to have as well as picking his brains about politics all over the world uh, predominantly in the UK and predominantly about the Labour Party but he is uh he got a great voice as well to listen to, so... Um maybe listen to this one in the bath but he's just got a great Scottish voice um, he is uh, yeah so you should know that we're friends we should deal with that at the start just so that you know um, but he is uh, a, a highly talented individual uh, respected across the political spectrum and uh, a fitting guest for this uh, landmark show uh, thanks to everyone who's come to see me on tour it, I mean it's been the most exciting and most enjoyable tour that I've ever done and uh, I've met a lot of you after gigs in Aberystwyth uh, in Salford um, in, uh, in in in, in Edinburgh and in Glasgow. So many very, very kind people who come because they listen to the podcast and it's a, a, such a treat that um, so many of you come to see me, so thank you very much for that. Uh, I'm doing uh, a, 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 just a hand three, less than a handful, a very small handful uh, of, of gigs left. Saturday the 18th of May in Chorley in the North West, Friday the 24th of May at the Camberley Theatre in Camberley and on Saturday the 25th of May the tour will come to an end at London's prestigious Bloomsbury Theatre, which I'm very, very excited about. You can get tickets for those through my website, mattford.com, slash live. For now, enjoy the amazing John McTherman. John, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here, thanks. I should say at the start, I I chose you deliberately for the 100th episode because I wanted to have a special guest for the 100th, and um, you're a good friend. And you're someone who has been, uh, has played a, a key role in numerous significant political events in recent history. Yeah, I've been around. <laughs> You've been around a bit. Um, we met uh, at the Labour Party conference in 2006. Yes. I think that's right. You were working for Tony Blair at the time. You were his uh, political secretary and director of political operations. I was, yeah. I was a regional organiser in the East Midlands.
0: You were. Um, and... One of the things about Labour Party conference is there's lots and lots of parties and the staff can never go to the parties because the staff are working. You That's work right. long hours. And I decided that since I was political secretary, I was going to hold a party on the final night of conference, not the the night before the last business, but the very final night. So all the staff who hadn't been able to go out could go out. And so I got one of my team to book a venue and it was a fantastic. He was able to get a whole venue. He was really proud about it. He said there'd be loads of room to dance. I've got this great gay bar down on Canal Street. And so that's where we met at three in the morning, uh, <laughs> on a veranda um, <laughs> that's right, in yeah. a gay bar in um, uh which was uh, and you uh, you won my heart by the way you impersonated Tony Blair, <laughs>
1: um,
0: an impersonation which is so full of love and still full of love. <laughs>
1: I've still got your business card. Oh, thank you <laughs> from back in there. I found it recently in the small <laughs> drawers, a uh, uh, chest of drawers, not small <laughs> pants. Um... But at the time you I mean it was a fan, fan, a fascinating period obviously to work for Tony Blair because it wasn't the ninety seven era tony blair this was this was towards the end this is the very dramatic period where um other Scottish people next door were um perhaps less loyal to Tony Blair than you were. How difficult was that as as someone who had grown up in Scottish labour and knew all its idiosyncrasies and all the different uh personalities in it to be working for Obviously, a Scottish Labour Prime Minister in Tony Blair, but someone who wasn't really of Scottish Labour in the same way that, that Gordon and others were.
0: No, it's really interesting. The I joined the Labour Party at the age of 15 in Edinburgh, and the um, the branch I was in had a famous member, John Smith, and we used to hold all of our fundraising events in John Smith's house, John Elizabeth's Amazing. house. And the first, our first candidate, the first man I ever voted for as a Labour MP was... Uh, was Gordon Brown. He was the candidate in Edinburgh South, which was then a safe Tory seat. It's now Ian Murray's seats a safe Labour seat, one of the handful of safe Labour seats left in, in Scotland. And so I kind of, uh, I grew up with the Scottish Labour Party, um, John and uh, John Smith and Gordon came to my dad's funeral. It was kind of a big, big part of my life, big family, and it was quite a wrench in a, in a way going into to number 10 when you're working with Tony and you know that... Um, the other guys after your boss's job. Um, although we, we had a meeting once in, in uh, with Tony, and um, one of the team said to Tony, "You know, yes, you know, Gordon's trying to get your job." And, and Tony just wrote, sat back and went, "It's not an ignoble ambition to want to be <laughs> prime minister," <laughs>
1: uh,
0: which is very funny. But the at the end at the end of a premiership, as, and Tony was at the end of a premiership uh, when you are in the political operation, you don't have that much currency because. Um, I had a small group of MPs who I organised to, to be loyal and they we called them the non-embittered ex-ministers <laughs> because they were the only ones who actually appreciated that there had to be reshuffles, people had to move on, they didn't think actually that they should then act out on the backbenches. There's so many former ministers who demand loyalty from the backbenchers when they're a minister and as soon as they get onto the backbench they find their own conscience and they find how wrong the government is and take a stand about it and Every single ex-minister, uh, after reshuffle, uh, got a handwritten note from Gordon about how brilliant their first speech from the back bench was <laughs> and how interesting it was, could they come for a cup of tea? So there was a whole operation going on. Um, but, you know, the way politics goes, one of the prime movers at the time uh, against uh, against us was Tom Watson, uh, who organised that um, Snakes on a Plane-style set of resignations. Everywhere you turned it, there was another PPS resigning and rolling out of the... Uh, rolling out the, uh, the aircraft and it was just but Tom and me we had worked together in the Labour Party he was a trainee librarian, he worked for me when I was a Labour Party librarian we stayed friends when I worked for, uh, for Tony we stayed friends during that conflict and just recently I went to a branch meeting where there was a motion attacking uh, Tom Watson so I was able to sit at my branch meeting and go I want to oppose this motion, I'd just like to read you a message that Tom has given me to read to the branch about this attack on him so, you know, if you stick around long enough in politics, uh, it's not just if you stick around long enough, your enemies' bodies will pass down the river in front of you. If you stick around long enough in politics, some of your enemies will become your friends. Because I met a civil servant recently, a senior civil servant, who said, we used to call your government dysfunctional.
1: We had no idea. <laughs> but just on Tom Watson, because some people might see him now as the potential saviour of the Labour Party. Um, at the time when he was so clearly organising to, to remove Tony Blair, was there any res- personal resentment between the two of you? A, not between
0: the two of us personally. Um should ever say
1: to him, Tom, come on?
0: No, because it, it's, it's, it's like that great line in The Godfather. It's not personal, <laughs> it's just business. And there's no point in telling somebody not to do business. What happens in those kind of conflicts is the, only, the people who respect each other are the people who stand up to each other um, I, know, I know a minister um, who was who was tapped up at the TUC and told, you know, the doors are closing, but there's still time for you to come across and come across and be on Gordon's side. And this minister just said, all I want is to be shot in the front, not the back. I want to be able to look my mum uh, in the eyes with respect. I do not want uh, to be seen to kind of be cowardly and gone over to you. And I think people in the end respect the strength of your commitment. Yes. Um, the people who sold their loyalty, they were you know, loyal to Tony and then became loyal to Gordon you never trust anybody's loyalty if they can sell their loyalty the only people whose loyalty you can trust are people who are undeviatingly loyal
1: So who were the, who were the non-embittered ministers, ex-ministers? Um, I'm not sure I can tell you Oh no, because that's a, posi- <laughs> that's a positive thing isn't it, that it's just that they, were, that, they, that they behaved well rather than that they behaved badly
0: Yeah, no, they, they um, Greg Pope would be a good example uh, a, a really good man, a man who who won and held his own seat, uh, and who also knew that he didn't win and hold his own seat on his own. He won it because attorney, kept it because attorney, uh, and is now one. Of the, he's one of the most. I think he's the senior lay figure now in the Catholic Church uh, uh, in the UK, and uh, and I, I think that kind of integrity. There were, there were there were about. 20 or 25 of them there was also a group that um uh that uh, was organized by the pps uh keith hill was the pps and he called it the q group and they were the people who asked helpful questions at question time we did have some resources to to, to call upon but the point is if you think about in 1997 you've not just got a big uh, majority so you can sustain revolts uh, although I think we probably should have punished people for revolting uh, and voting against the Labour Whip at the time. And we might not actually have John McDonnell or <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn in membership <laughs> in the parliamentary party if they'd been properly punished, as they would have been in Australia. But, you know, you you have no, you, you can't offer the promotion to somebody because all the promotions would be gone. And if they've been on the backbench for 10 years or if they've been in the ministry and out, there's nothing you can offer them. You've got maybe, uh, you know, the Labour Party brought back in um, for local government leaders. We gave knighthoods out to local government leaders to recognize their service. The Tories use knighthoods quite a bit for their people. But there's there's a very, at the end of it, you've got to rely on their belief in the project, their belief in the politics, their belief that being in government, a Labour government, is better than the alternative. And the thing about the end of a government is, some people uh, in the parliamentary party and some people in the uh, in the party at large get tired of government. I remember this isn't a Labour Party story, but I remember being in uh, in Sweden with um, the advisers of the then Swedish Social uh, Democratic government, and it was uh, I just we were having a long conversation, and so many of them seem to be. Very pessimistic about the next election. So I said, okay, hands up, those of you who think you're going to win the next election. And like a couple of them put their hands up. And I went, I'm not sure I should really be working with you because you need to want to be a winner to winner. (laughs) I'm not saying that by believing you'll win, you'll win. But by believing you'll come second, you will definitely (laughs) lose, right? And there's there's a bit of that, that people in the end, they get tired of government, tired of governing, tired of the compromises. They kind of believe you could renew an opposition. Yeah. And the thing is about being in opposition, Tony always used to say this, is every morning in government you get up and you think about what you're going to do. Every morning in opposition you get up and just think about what you're going to say. And there's a world of difference yeah. between doing and saying.
1: They're like football fans uh, in a struggling, struggling to stay in the league who would rather get relegated. Yeah. Who go, you know what, I think if we went down, it'd be easy. Because they just want the pain to end. Yeah. That's all it is. They just want the closure of it. They're sick of their local members saying to them, bloody hell, what about Iraq? They're sick of their family and friends saying to them, Tony Blair's this, that and the other. They they can't take the pressure of it. And they say, just get me out of this hell. I can still be a Labour MP. And all the pressure of responsibility is gone.
0: And there's there's another thing which is... Uh, in a way more understandable, which is by being in government you set a new reality and so eventually you forget what it was like living under the uh, under the previous government. So I was a chair of education in London Borough Southwark and in four years as chair of education I got two capital projects granted for schools, two things done for schools uh, in my area. A big London borough that needed lots and lots of things. I got but they were the mo- there were some of the most needy in, in the country. I got in an 1850s church hall stopped being used uh, for the school dinners by getting a new building for the for the school to go to. It was a huge achievement. But we had you know until 1997, there were schools in England without outside toilets. Yeah. Schools with outside toilets. That goes away and you forget it ever happened. And in a way, that's that's good. That's the right thing. You have made a new normal. <laughs> um, but actually. People realize now, if you look at the, the scale of the cuts to welfare that have been since 2010, because the, the co- first the coalition, now the Tory government, the minority Tory government, that is of a scale that's so different compared to the tax credits and the, res- the, the relief that was given. And I think, I was reflecting, cause Bob Hawke died uh, just yesterday, tragically, one of the great Labour leaders of Australia and one of the great Prime Ministers and one of the great Labour leaders of the movement globally. And one thing he did always was he always told the story of what they were doing. They did hard things. They floated the dollar. They removed the tariff barriers. They modernized, globalized the economy. But he never stopped telling the story. And I think ta- you, it's very, very often politicians never take the time to stop uh, and tell. Yes. And telling is selling. And I think we don't tell ourselves. We don't. And you can see that at the moment with the, the Corbyn leadership. They have a story about the Labour Party. And they tell it all the time. Yes. And it's one in which there's only ever really been one Labour leader, um, and, and that's Jeremy. But there's really only been one other Labour leader, and that's the bad one, and that's Tony Blair, and he's not really Labour. And you can tell, and there's a funny little bit of their analysis, which they kind of go, Tony was a Tory, and do you know what the proof of him being a Tory was? He won three elections because we know that only Tories can win elections. So that was the thing that gave him away. Those three victories were the giveaway
1: that he had to be a Tory. The, the period you had in Downing Street um, wasn't just the end of the Blair era mm. and, and the first cracks appearing, you know, severe cracks in, in, in new Labour. Mm. There was also the cash for honours. There was. Uh, situation. Uh, it, you were twice questioned under caution mm-hmm. in a highly controversial operation launched by the police, which involved uh, mm. uh, female members of, of staff being forced to dress in dawn raids mm. in front of police. It was a horrific experience for people. Mm. Just thinking about your personal experience of it. I mean, there's, I, I suppose because of Iraq and other things, in mm. a way, Cash is, 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 by many people, has been slightly forgotten. And probably not by you, um, but there was a genuine belief at the time, on behalf of mm-hmm. probably elements of the police and elements of the public, and certainly elements of the media, that the Labour government had sold peerages and mm-hmm. knighthoods mm-hmm. on uh, in return for political donations. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, did you ever see anything that made you suspicious?
0: So the first thing, the first thing uh, I would say is that many, many people in politics, particularly the senior level, I operated at. Are accused of crimes, and very few have ever been cleared of crimes. I was cleared of a crime, so I didn't do it. The police conclude I didn't do it. Uh, we didn't do it. Um, and there's a, there's a, there's two things to say about it. One is that at the at the heart of um, of this, it's an offence to sell. It's an offence to buy. So it really is a highly legislated area. Um, The thing I think that outraged the police, because it's a really interesting allocation of police resources, because we got some, there were, these were um, very senior investigating officers who would normally have been investigating uh, murders. Wow. Um, So they were serious, like they were really serious. When you were interrogated, you were interrogated. Um, And... I always thought, uh, and I said it at the end, that I think I, I wished it, had ha- it hadn't lasted 18 months, or last 18 weeks, or even 18 days, and I reckon the police did too, because that was a lot of police resource tied up in looking into me, to Jonathan Powell, to uh, my colleague uh, Ruth Turner, looking into us that could have been used for actually solving genuine crimes. Um, I think, to- you know, you weren't, I wasn't talking to the police, but in the investigation, what you could really see was they were outraged by the constitutional fact that Tony Blair could make somebody appear. He could have made you Lord Ford. Uh, never did. Lord Ford of Forest. (laughs) That would be amazing. It's got a ring, hasn't it? Come on. Um, Come on, it's And it's that fiat power of making somebody a lord, putting somebody into parliament. You're making you a parliamentarian by the gift of the prime minister. I could see that they were genuinely intellectually and almost constitutionally outraged. How can this be? They felt, in a sense, that it was a crime that you could just put somebody into <laughs> the House of Lords. And in that sense, it was a crime they could investigate. I mean, the, the absurdity of it was the, uh, the SNP, uh, MSP, who, whose name I will not mention uh, because uh, he is... In politics, very few people become your lifelong enemies, but some do. Um, this man is a lifelong uh, enemy of mine, not an opponent, an enemy. Um, Everyone's he, going to be Googling this. He sent press cuttings from the Sunday Times to the Metropolitan Police and said, this looks like there's been a crime. Can you investigate it? And the cops didn't go, if you have evidence for crime, supply it. They went, oh, you've got an accusation of a crime. Let's investigate and see if we can find some evidence. And it's like, honestly, if that is the standard by which you, you do things... um. You could go around getting loads of, of MPs investigated, loads of political parties investigated by just making allegations. I, no, no, a, I've I've got an allegation to make about the Scottish National Party. Can you investigate it? I've got no evidence, but I'd like you to try and find the evidence. <laughs> You've got eighteen months. You can assign like, like it's really it's in the national interest that you find this evidence that I allege might be there. And but the I wouldn't recommend. I would never recommend the experience of being under police investigation. Mm. It's a uh, it's a personally a very it's, a very it's personally very harrowing um do, you, do but you, you find out but you do find out about you, like i would never i would never wish that experience away I've found out more about myself than I ever would have done and what did you find out the, in the end you've only got one thing uh, in politics and in life which is your own integrity, so the thing about the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth is the core of it is yourself you have to be true about what you did true about why you did it true about yourself because you will be as my lawyer one of my lawyers I got really great support from Peter Watt when he General Secretary of the Labour Party I got great support uh, they, they pay for brilliant lawyers for me and I've got nothing but praise for for the way I supported. And I think I've seen other people in the Labour Party since then uh, hung did, out yeah. to dry and let down by by, by by the system I was never let down and that was a great thing uh, for me. Um, in fact when Tony left number 10 uh, I was just taken on uh, to be employed by the the party full time until such time as it went if it went to trial because a trial of that seriousness would have taken three or four years to come to the Old Bailey. So, and the, the Peter said the good news is I can keep you on the books um, the bad news is you've got to go and um, help Tom Watson run a by-election campaign <laughs> um, oh, which, was, which was hilarious. And then At at quarter to ten uh, on the evening uh, of the Southwold by-election, just before the the polling uh, polling closed, I got a phone call from Nick Robinson saying, I'm going to tell the country at ten o'clock that you're not being charged, because the Metropolitan Police had tipped him off. Wow. uh, Which is not... That's how you found out? That's how I found out. I was phoned by Nick Robinson.
1: He said, John, I've got some news. (laughs) (laughs) Who'd have thought it? (laughs) The Metropolitan Police...
0: (laughs) He did
1: indeed. Um, oh, my God. That's diabolical.
0: And then and I, I immediately got calls from the day Programme who asked me to go, and I went on the next morning, and I was interviewed by John Humphreys. Which and is, how did that
1: compare to a police interrogation?
0: It was very tough, and what he wanted to get me to say was, this was really bad, it was a stupid thing. You wanted me to attack the police? And I went, no, honestly. I think they, I th- I think they did their job professionally, I don't think they should have done it for as long as they did, but I was I was very emollient about the police, and um, I then took the senior investigating officer out for lunch and said, "Look, <laughs> this it, like this was just this was just business." Oh my god! Uh, because well, you should make it absolutely clear to everybody involved, you hold no resentments, Because what I mean, what would it be like the other way around? I was I attacked the Metropolitan Police on the radio. I made them all
1: think at a senior level I resented them. Like, no, they were they they. They did their job. But did you ever feel that you were being interviewed with a presumption of guilt? Was there any part of you that thought, I know I'm innocent, but innocent people go to prison? Um, that's a really good question.
0: Uh, it, I actually... I fully believed in the system. Okay, so you,
1: you, just, you never thought I you would end up in didn't think, I didn't
0: think I was being fitted up. Okay. Uh, no, and also the... Um, <laughs> The kind of gallows humour of, of really, really good, um, really good lawyers. It goes like go. for one of my interviews uh, with the police, uh, my brief said to me, "Sir so John, you're not going to go to the Bailey. This is not going to go to the Bailey. But just make sure that every single thing you say will sound okay when it's said back to you in the Old Bailey." <laughs> and I went, "Oh my God, <laughs> thank you." Um, and it's just like, well, okay. And, and at that, that moment, your world falls uh, from underneath you because yeah. you actually have to envisage this process if you go into the Bailey. And then he went, but it's okay uh, with this scent, this thing, and your record. It, w- it would be a suspended sentence at worst.
1: Oh, but you. Oh.
0: So you have to. So in one sense, you have to envisage the possibility, but you believe in the system and the process. And of course, the uh, in the end.
1: That's such a good point about your words, you know, because you can hear the news report. John McTurnan told the court that it was standard practice. You know, you can see the way that it would make an innocent person look guilty, just yeah. the way that the, the, the court coverage is covered. Um, it, it, maybe not, you weren't scared of incarceration, but w- were there any fears? Did you have a fear for your family or for your career or anything else? Uh, so, that's, that's a very good, that's
0: really good. So, I, I feared the intrusion on my family. So, I gave rather than have a dawn raid where they where they took my they seized my our home computer. I say I gave the police, well, I gave my lawyer to give to my give to the police my the password to my Yahoo account. So I've only got I've only got one private email account. The cops can have it. The uh, the password they can search it. I don't want them to go and raid my house. Uh, when my kids are going to school, and my yeah. partners at home. And I said, and if they really want to take the hard drive, they can have the hard drive, but but we can arrange to hand it over to them and all that kind of stuff. So that was... So in that sense, I tried to keep it away. I think... Um, Do you think they would have raided your house had you not done that? W- well, they definitely liked uh, kind of shaking the bars, didn't they? Yeah. Because they... You mentioned um, my colleague Ruth, uh, Turner, uh, being she's she's woken in the early hours by the police who then made her dress in front a woman police officer was in the room while she dressed um they took her to the police station it was it was so early that she couldn't phone her lawyer because there's nobody around till nine o'clock yeah um and they did it the morning after i had gone to do an interview with the police they did it to make her believe that i'd said something yeah. against her they did. They tried to. They tried to play you against each other. So they try. They, they. do. They did all the games, the tricks, the manoeuvres, because they want to set you against each other. Um, one occasion, I sat down with them, I went sat down, and they went, "You know, you're not meant to speak to anybody else in number ten about these at these interviews." I went, "Yeah, yeah." says, "Well, then, why did you speak to such and such in number ten after our last interview?" I went, "Whoa!" And I stopped the interview. Went out and talked to my lawyer. And I said I didn't. They're lying. And he said, I know they're lying. They're just doing it to rock you. They're, tr- they're trying to knock you off confidence. Oh they're trying God. to. So like, so, so you knew that they'd be perfect. They, they were. It was a proper investigation. They would do everything that they could to find a chink in your armor if you were lying. So every. So that you had to yourself had to think. Okay, I'll make these defenses for myself in this way and in these ways. And I think. I think it, I stayed on in government, with, uh, working for other ministers when Gordon was, was Prime Minister. And that's because I, w- looking back on it, I realized I was, most of my colleagues left number 10, went to other jobs. I didn't have it in me to move out of government. I was kind of, I'd like been in the deep freeze and it took, it took a, it took took, looking back on it, it took years to recover, uh, to get my kind of self-confidence. So did I think it blight my career? No did it put a cloud over my career? Yes. and But then, you remember, when I was 10 years on from uh, MPs' expenses, yeah. and, I, and I know a few of the MPs who got involved in that, friends of mine, Labour and Tory, and I always, the ones I knew personally, I always dropped them a note and said, look, if you've done the right thing, this will move, this will go on, and people, and the number of them I got in touch with, because I know from my own experience, like, if, because people just forget about things, and, they went. What do? You, how do you know anything about people forgetting this? I said, Well, I was investigating the police, and they almost all said, "When?" And I wow. went, "Cash for peerages," and they go, "Oh yeah," and they go, "Yes, I now remember. I now remember. I've forgotten." Yeah, and so th- things do move on, and you have to. Yeah. I mean, you people have to have to be reminded. This was a big event. It was a big event in my life, and it really was a big thing. It was a big, and I think it was a big thing between me and, and me and my children. That's uh, I took. At the end of it all, I took my younger son uh, away for a, a weekend in Venice to the Biennale, which uh, had a great time. But it was kind of like we'd he had not been seeing a lot of me, and I'd been quite closed and turned in on myself. So I think it was that was an important thing for me, and I gradually it's gradually like sort of coming out and sitting in the sun when the sun when summer starts, you gradually sort of unfurl and and, and that give. But it took a time, like it took a it took a time, it took a toll, uh, and I've I've never really talked about it very often, and it's useful to talk about it now because I think by talking about it, reflecting on that it, it, it was a big thing
1: It's because I knew you through that mm. whole I'd only just got to know you then but I, I've known you you know that period mm. from then to now is the period that I've mm. known you and, and um, I would never have thought of you as lacking in confidence or being under a mm. cloud or anything like that we don't see each other on a daily mm. basis and I don't mean that in the sense that you're an egotist but I, I never noticed any change in your personality but maybe I didn't see you regularly enough um, but it's obviously unthinkable mm. that it wouldn't have had an effect yeah. because the, the pressure, the public spotlight of it. I wonder as well about how other people treated you. W- w- were, did it make other colleagues suspicious? Did people? Oh, that's a good. No, that's comments?
0: so. Um, I told you that the um, that Nick Robinson got the formal announcement of, uh, of me being cleared. Um, what was interesting? There were there were stories leaked. There were stories about uh, 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 about the investigation leaked. They were always run by the crime correspondents. One of my, my friends on the lobby in the lobby always updated me about when a story is going to come out in their paper, and they said it didn't come to us. It came, so which meant nobody in Number Ten was leaking because people in Number Ten don't leak to crime correspondents. Yeah. Cops leak to crime correspondents. Uh, and it's like it's whenever I see people, come, the police moaning about um, leaks to newspapers, I go like, "How about you investigate yourself first? If you <laughs> if you guys stop selling information uh, to crime correspondents, loads of these stories will just disappear, yeah. disappear." Um, so the, my my peer group, uh, I would say the peer your peer group splits into two. Uh, there's the kind of there's the there's the cynics and there's the believers. The cynics think you definitely did it, but it was your job to do it. Um, and the believers go, you could never done anything wrong, so you didn't do it. And yeah. it's like, but nobody thought you were wrong, and then you did it, and it was wrong.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so you kind of had that sense always. And 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 again, I suppose that's one of my learnings from it, which is. Your peer group are really important to you, and I always say that. I say that uh, when I do work with leaders in other, in other, in loads of other industries. Yeah, if you if like first, if you've done the right thing, you can always make a case internally, externally, and you can win an argument for doing the right thing. And if you've done the wrong thing, stop it. Um, so don't do the wrong thing. Do the right thing. And your peer group will judge you. That's the people you have to most protect and, and, and be concerned about. And my peer group, the advi- other advisors, the politicians, whether they were ministers or whether they are backbenchers in the Labour Party, and politicians, I know, on the other side uh, of the House. And one of the, one of the things which I know people find strange is that Labour people can like Tory people. Um, the thing is, uh, we're in the same trade. Yeah. Um, it's the same, re- the same reason that football fans supporting different teams can dis- have passionate discussions <laughs> about football <laughs> because you care about the same thing. The people you d- are not interested in, as people have no interest in your in the thing <laughs> you really care about. So I think I, I, that was. I never worried. I, I look. You, you do at the beginning. You think, will people think badly of me? Mm. And so I knew myself in myself. I knew the support I was getting. I knew uh, that my peer. In, over time, you worked out. Well, yeah, your peer group don't like your peer group. Do not think this. Uh, the the worst thing, um, and the most unforgivable thing, uh, was when Jack Dromey uh, personally attacked me. Uh, and I used to work for Harriet, and that, him attacking me, uh, um, and not having the courage to speak to me to my face, to do it on the television. And like, I thought, you've kind of, that's crossed a line. It's like not it's not just inside the Labour family. I worked for I worked for Harriet. I, I support Harriet. I think Harriet's a great politician. She's gonna make a great speaker in the House of Commons, uh, when when John Burke decides to stand down. And I thought so some of the things so some of the things where you feel about it is where uh it was quite personally aimed at you, but that stands out because really hardly any of it was, uh
1: And and Jack Drummy played a kind of crucial role in that whole story happening because... (coughs) <coughs> he was treasurer of the Labour Party. Mm. He said, well, I'm treasurer, I haven't heard about any of this stuff. And it was a real ignorance, an understandable ignorance on behalf of the police and the public, mm. that the treasurer of the Labour Party isn't really the treasurer of the exactly. Labour Party. In fact, the general secretary isn't really, you know... The
0: general secretary's not a secretary. No. Although, um, they, if you go to the Labour Party archives up in the, um, the, the Museum in Manchester, the People's Museum in Manchester.
1: People's History Museum, yes. People's History
0: Museum. You've got the first minute book, uh, the minutes were written in, uh, in a minute book, and this beautiful copper plate handwriting of Ramsay MacDonald, who was the first general secretary. So in the old days, the general secretary actually was the secretary <laughs> of the National Executive <laughs> Committee and wrote the, the notes. But no, the, the general secretary is not the general secretary, and the treasurer definitely has got nothing to do with money um, at all. It's a, it's, a, it's a nominal title.
1: And what was slightly frustrating to you was, was that he knew that. Oh, but he yeah. used the title to, yeah. to play a role, and that was... Um, <laughs> that was frustrating to watch yeah no no people like people in politics as in real life
0: people are responsible for their actions uh for good or ill and they do them knowingly for good or ill uh, and they're judged on that uh for good or ill
1: <laughs> it's kind of biblical um, element all this talk of judgment you had a number of other roles as well i mean you Anyone who knows you will, will know that you're obviously a highly intellectual and talented, but, <laughs> but also modest with it. You, you wear it all very lightly. And you, you, you worked for Julia Gillard out in, uh, out in Australia, a, a remarkable period. Mm. It's been a phenomenal period in your life when you were her director of communications and, and, and the things that she was going through. Um, firstly, in terms of the way she was treated by... And I was watching this, obviously, from mm-hmm. afar. But it seemed that the way she was treated by her own party was despicable, How bad was it on the ground?
0: Uh, It wasn't her own party. Um, Right to the very end, uh, every single one of the affiliated unions, left and right, uh, supported Julia. Um, It wasn't the parliamentary caucus. It was one man. It was Kevin Rudd. Kevin Mm -hmm. Rudd, uh, in the Australian uh, term, white-handed her, undermined her white anted white anted white ants they get into the wooden uh foundations of your building and they eat away at it and it collapses he white anted like her. termites uh, like termites he termites um, <laughs> so, termite termite anator termite <laughs> um so julia is still a friend and she's one of the best politicians i've worked for but to be honest through 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 luck or judgment, uh, I've always worked for good politicians, politicians who are scrupulous in their behaviour, in their analysis, strategic reach. People from whom I've learned and people who I think I uh, hope have learned by working with me. Uh, and uh, I've, I'm still on, you know I'm still friends with all of my previous uh, political bosses. I don't think that's true of everybody. I think some of those relationships can can deteriorate over time. Some of them are never kind of particularly close. So Julia was. The most talent. The first time I saw her, uh, I was... Uh, Labour in opposition. I went to help Labour in um, in, in the mid-2000s because uh, we'd been winning elections and they'd been losing. And one of the, the then-National Secretary of the Labour Party came to see me and Matthew Taylor in uh, number 10 and said, look, we've lost three in a row and you've won three in a row. Perhaps we could learn from you. And so I went out to, to do some work. I saw Julia in... Um, in Parliament, I think she was the best parliamentary performer of her uh, of her generation. And when she made the misogyny speech, I think she showed.
1: Yes, that was amazing. Because people,
0: these uh, people often ask about you know that and say, Look, "What a great speech you wrote for." her. And it's like, my office, me, and my press secretary, uh, my clo- my close colleague and, and and friend Sean Sean Kelly, we supplied her. Uh, with a piece of paper on which she wrote four bullet points and we gave her four quotes that we uh, had sourced that she wanted. She went in with four bullet points and four quotes and she gave the Jacuzze speech uh, uh, of the Australian Parliament. A brilliant performer. Um, she was a great reform- She's She, uh, you know, despite everything, having a minority government, which is what we had, uh, and being undermined by Kevin Rudd and eventually uh, rolled by Kevin, She uh, delivered uh, education reform, which has been lasting, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which modernised disability care in Australia. She reformed the telecoms market with a structural separation of Telstra. She brought in uh, a market-based mechanism uh, for carbon pricing. Um, I was really pretty proud that almost everything we did was actually based on either um, patient choice, parental choice, uh, or some kind of market uh, Mark Orange, we were a pretty new Labour government, um, and the communications challenge in Australia—it's a robust politics. Uh, and the coverage of it is robust; it's robust in Parliament. Um, I will, you know, there was a beginning of a trend then, which followed after me, which was for the politicians on the other side to attack staffers. Uh, we've seen that happening in, in in the UK with attacks on Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill. And the thing about attacking staffers—and I will stick up for any staffer of any of any of, of any party. Staffers, while they work for a minister or a prime minister, can't speak in their own voice, and it's wrong to attack them. It's an abuse of power uh, by senior leading politicians. Do that, but I loved. Oh look, I loved Australia. I loved the people, loved the food, loved the skies, loved the politics. I loved the. I love Sydney. I loved Melbourne. It's uh, a great country, um, and it's the only country in the world I could ever imagine being a citizen of, apart from the United Kingdom. That it's a. It was a, it was a major part. A major part of my career. A great politician to work for. We changed uh, the country for for good. We've changed it for better and permanently. And we achieved a, a lot in a time when when it it looks as though we we didn't lose it. We had a minority government. We didn't lose a single vote on the floor, not a single vote. Uh, and that is a pretty big achievement when you look at the way the minority government <laughs> here keeps losing votes. Um, control the Parliament, the chamber is really important. Um, and you know we've. In the end, I mean, there was a thing in Australian politics at the time I was there of constantly changing leaders. You know, you had um, on the Liberal side, you had a constantly changing roster of opposition leaders till Tony Abbott. And then when he became Prime Minister, they kept on changing They're on their third Prime Minister. Um, Labour did the same. Bill Shorten, who's going, they're going to the polls uh, tomorrow morning in, in Australia, it looks like Labour's going to form a government, and he's been the Labour leader uh, since 2013, so nearly six years, as long as Paul Keating. So Labour have finally learned. You know, If I, if I try to sum up what happened in our, in our time in Australia, there were, um, we had four leadership elections in three years. And one of the rules of politics is disunity is death. Yeah. Four leadership elections in three years. And the public go, you guys need some time out. You, you know, like you, you guys should be relegated for a season. Um, and then, look, again, the thing that's really important to me that Tony said, well, you, you can never win every election. You should be in a position that you can win the one after you lose. Mm-hmm. Always be able to bounce back, come back. You, you cannot... It's a dicta- It's a dictatorship if you always win. It's not democracy if you always win. But you must always be able to renovate yourself to be able to come back. And I think look, Labour. Labour took took a defeat in twenty thirteen. Took a second defeat. Became very close with Bill Shorten. It was the making of him. And I think that was the springboard for uh, what I hope will be a great reforming Labour, uh, great reforming Labour government. And one of the paradoxes of um, New Zealand, the UK, uh, and Australia, the three closest Labour parties in the world. Um, There was only one year last century when all three were in power at the same time. Uh, And so we've got New Zealand Labour with Jacinda, we've got, um, uh, I hope, Australian Labour this weekend, and then possibly a UK Labour government uh, on the horizon, um, which the Tories are doing their best to create. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is
1: coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Do you still believe that you know the, the worst day of a Labour government's the best, better than the hang on the worst day of a Labour government's better than the best day of a Tory one under Corbyn? Uh,
0: I fear that a Labour government under Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell would be like uh, Francois Mitterrand uh, in the eighties, but with no reverse gear, <laughs> no break, no reverse gear, and that the scale of what they plan to do in terms of nationalisation, which is actually expropriation. So stealing value from pension funds, the scale of what they want to do and forcing British-owned companies to give 10% of their shares to the workers, which is a dilution of the shares. But it's also, it's a burden on only British-owned companies. So uh, it wouldn't be on French-owned or American-owned companies, just British-owned companies. And that is, in the end, a tax on British jobs. Um, It's a cost that British companies have to bear. I think there are so many things which are so doubtful. I do think... And the thing is, the areas that I feel most personally passionate about, like uh, Social Security and Welfare, uh, it's where I started off working with Harriet Harman in government, um, are the areas where the, the John MacDonald and Jeremy Corbyn are most silent. What are they going to do about universal credit? I don't know. They should scrap it. Um, what are they going to do about housing benefit? I don't know. They want to build a million council houses. Where are they going to get the workers from and the capital from? And there's been this, there's been a, you know, there's a genuine belief that there is a magic money tree um and that really worries me because we can there is a limit on borrowing there is a limit on how much a, a sovereign country can borrow they there are so they want to do so many things in so many ways and you know and as far as one can work out they're preparing for government without preparing for a plan for Brexit when Brexit is the only reality that you have to handle when you come into government like it's the one big thing is unavoidable the rest of it you can sequence brexit's not got any sequencing in it we're in it hearing
1: you say magic money tree just reminded me of that clip of you and zoe williams on i think it was the daily politics during the labor party <laughs> conference where she says there is a magic money tree it's called the bank of england and there's a kind of just a facial reaction <laughs> rolling my viral a kind of horrified look but that, there is, I mean, people like that are giving intellectual cover to this stuff. And in, in the Labour Party manifesto, they said, well, we'll just, we'll borrow 500 billion quid.
0: Yeah, I know. It's a lot of money, 500 billion. It is. Um, and it's also, that, that's, the, the greatest, the, the greatest achievement of the 2017 Labour manifesto was that John McDonnell had a list and, and priced his promises, they had a list of taxes and priced the tax increases Um, and they summed to zero so as if it all added up and the interesting thing was the Tories so weak intellectually didn't bother to take that apart, I think they believed that Jeremy Corbyn was so unelectable he didn't need to do anything else and they sold a pass when they did that. They should have t- systematically taken apart uh, all of that.
1: And the only reason they managed to balance it off was they put in a, a, a percentage that they called a contingent, contingency of mm-hmm. error or whatever, a margin of error, that then magically, Man. it was something like 3.8% or whatever it was. I remember reading it again, that's just a way of making it add up. Yeah, It was nakedly there in black and white. Anyway, we don't want to no. We don't know no, too much no, no, on the no, that no, Labour no. manifesto. But I just wonder if you know you are as Labour as they come. You mm-hmm. are you are you are a, a, a kind of Labour cut through. You know, Scottish mm-hmm. Labour served various different areas of the Labour yeah. Party. Are John MacDonald and Jeremy Corbyn, in your view, Labour people?
0: In my view, uh, they're both from the margins of the Labour Party and the Labour movement. Uh, they're not from the mainstream tradition of of, of Labour. They'd be unrecognisable to the Labour prime ministers Attlee, Wilson, both of whom came from the left. Um, they, you know, like if you if you run back in time, uh, you know, one of one of the things that um, the Austro- my Australian colleagues obviously were like, how how could you tolerate um, the indiscipline? He said because after if you break the whip once in Australian politics you you don't simply get punished by the whips office you won't be an mp at the next election mm. that is it you've broken you've broken the discipline of the caucus and the discipline of your faction you'll be removed from your seat that is it there's no question the waters will just close over you and if you look back and you think the number of times that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell uh, praised their consciences around the, the Commons Chamber voted with the Tories, um, which they're always, you know, their supporters on Twitter are always accusing me of being a Tory. I've never voted with the Tories in my life, um, but they have repeatedly. So if we'd had a different uh, approach to discipline, they wouldn't have been MPs by 2001. Um, and I think, to be honest, we'd be a better Labour Party without that end. Of, of the uh, Of the party being represented, it's not that I have anything against either of the, them as individuals. It's I do think that uh, you know, as they say, uh, good fences make good neighbors. Political parties need boundaries. By saying there are no enemies to the left, what the, what the new leadership have allowed in is that strand of anti-Semitism which has always been part of the far left uh, in, in global politics. And uh, in a UK politics, and you know, there's a straight line from the anti-Semitic uh, memes of the Soviet era Communist Party to some of what we see surfacing in social media, disgustingly among uh, supporters uh, of the the current leadership. So, I do think uh, if you draw if you draw a line in politics uh, on on your right and on your left as our Labour Party, there are some people. Who are not in the mainstream and some people it would, be, it would be, our, our party would be better uh, if it was led by Yvette Cooper or um, Peter Kyle or there's a whole range of people who come from the, the mainstream tradition I, and I don't I don't think and I think this is one of the reasons why some of the policies like expropriation uh, of nationalized uh, of, of privatized um, industries some of those policies are really threatening because they come from a tradition which doesn't respect the rule of law, doesn't respect property rights. And for all that, we can say that the NHS and pensions and the welfare state created by the Attlee government is a great force for bringing us together. I'm a believer that, you know, freedom of speech and property rights are essential parts of keeping us together. And it it shouldn't be the believing in property rights. Uh, is a part belongs to conservative tradition in politics it belongs to the politics of our democracy, and so i fe- so I think what do I think I think that our politics our system relies on two parties being in a broadly similar centrist place center left center right, broadly both being competent and when a government is competent, they get to govern when they 're incompetent, they can be chucked out and a competent opposition can replace them. And that's what the public tend to want. And we've currently got two parties which are quite drawn to their their right and their left. And they're probably, you know, you've got the most incompetent um, prime minister in history, I think, in democratic history. And you've almost certainly got, uh, at times, the least competent leader of the opposition. And it's it's Keystone Cops. Um, It's just like, you know, as the... um, how low can they go? Well, much lower, apparently. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, you think it was yeah. really bad? It's got worse. There is always something more to lose. Yeah, no worse there
1: isn't. No, there is actually. It's um, a, it's a, it's a fascinating period for, for so many reasons. Not and all these things happening at the same time: Brexit, mm. uh, the yeah. organization of the Labour Party, uh, Scottish, the Scottish independence debate. You worked for uh, Jim Murphy, mm. um, a, a fascinating individual I've had on the show a couple of times. Mm-hmm. One of the best guests we've ever had on. I mean, for you. I find I find the Scottish independence question really emotionally traumatic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How do you find it?
0: So there's a bit of me that finds it utterly baffling, uh, because I remember talking to, and I've always I've, I've got friends in the uh, in the SNP. I've always kept up good relationships uh, where I can with with, with um, people in the nationalist tradition in politics. But when you discuss, one of the really interesting business-friendly, business-leaning uh, ministers they had, I had a long conversation with him, and in the end, we were just at one of those uh, political dinners, you, you, political awards dinners, we were on the same table, and I was kind of, I was trying to get, to what is it? What's the difference? What's the difference? It's kind of well, Scottish people run Scottish businesses, and that would be better. it's like. Well, that doesn't work in the Premier League, right? Yeah. Um, it's like, what is special about somebody from your own country running something in your own country? It, and it made me, it, I think the defining setting of my politics, I'm an internationalist, not a nationalist. And so I, f- I find there's something at the emotional core of nationalism I just don't get. And it may be that I am, uh, as David Miliband once joked with me, he said, the problem with, the problem with people like you and me, John, is we're rootless cosmopolitans. <laughs> and, you know, the life I've had, uh, born in London, uh, moved to Scotland as a, as a young kid because my dad got, got a job up there. Um, then myself, went to university in Scotland, came down to London, worked in uh, Australia. That moving around is, is, a, parti- is a particular type uh, of there's a, there's, a, there's a global elite of people like me for whom that's a normal way of doing things I really enjoy it, I've got a great deal out of it um, I don't see the point of being roost in one country and so the national question for me it, it, I don't get the emotional connection, so fair enough I do get the patriotism and yeah. as Jim Murphy would always say every nationalist is a patriot but not all patriots are nationalists and that space we have to protect because Wanting Scotland to be in the United Kingdom is not anti Scottish why? Because the United Kingdom is the greatest uh, engine for redistribution that 's ever been invented because you know I love living in London, I love living and working hard in London, and I love the fact that Londoners work so hard they generate so much wealth we can redistribute to the rest of the country, and that we don 't mind that that we get on with our life we think we 've got a great city, we work hard, we make enough money to mean that if you 're old in Scotland or you're in a rural part of England or you Rural part, a very difficult rural part, access, a very difficult, unaccessible rural part of Wales. You get the same access to public services. You, g- that is right. And so, for me, the fiscal transfer to Scotland, which is around ten percent of GDP, that is a sign of social solidarity, a sign of social democracy in action. And to dis- to be so committed to the notion that independence is in itself so valuable that we. That you could take a willingly take a cut of 10% in GDP, which you will never recover, because you can, you, you st- you, the base you start from for growing is, is, all, is permanently uh, made smaller. I don't. I, I genuinely just don't. I kind of don't get it. And, and in politics, I've always tried to get the other understand the other side, because if if you don't give a scrupulous weight to the arguments of the other side, you can never defeat them. Mm. You've got to take people. On their own reckoning, their own arguments, and then defeat those arguments, and then pull people onto your side. So I find it the easiest question in the world to answer: Should Scotland be independent? No. Why? Um, what, what, it's kind of like, what would Scotland do that was different? And it used to, and the story always the story always changes. So it wasn't until, until 2017, England's so right wing, Scotland's left wing, Scotland should be separated. Okay, then you have the court, you have Corbyn and the Labour Party doing really really well. It's like, so England's not really that right wing, is it, if you're voting for the Corbyn Labour Party? Oh, that's not the argument, and that's not what we mean really, is it? Um, the Tory party in a really bad place, and Brexit. Okay, so is it, so is it Brexit that means... Is it, it's... the? Essence, I mean, the nationalism in the end is always in the search for a single transferable grievance. It's yeah. like, find some reason to be angry about things and then be angry, and it's like... It, it, so you, you 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 put up, you, you brought a kind of whole, whole set of things together. I think the... Indi- I think the rise of the SNP, the Yes Movement, F- Farage, Trump, the ERG, the Brexit, all there's a lot of things around which are, they are symptoms, not causes. Mm. That there's something big going on in our, in our politics. Um, I think a big thing of it is the global financial crisis, where the banks nearly crashed the global economy. We bailed them out with our money, Um, they didn't go to jail and most of us haven't had a pay rise for 10 years. That's enough in itself to really (laughs) provide a reservoir of anger for, for populism. I think people are being driven mad in a sense by climate change. It's so real. It's so close to us. uh, And you can pick on the, you can pick on the plastics and David Attenborough. There's all kinds of ways of getting it. But people, I I don't believe there's very many people who don't believe that climate change is real. the problem is they don't know what we can do to stop it. Mm. So the you know, the the AOC, the Green New Deal in America, the Green New Deal uh, in Britain, the, the Extinction Rebellion. There's definitely a strong set of pieces, strong set of forces around around that. So I think there's some big things going on, um, and you know we, we're at the edge of talking about them in British politics. Uh, I grew up in a time uh, in the seventies when I remember the, the Tory adverts were. The backdrop of I was a, I was a punk in the seventies. The backdrop, of, a backdrop of punk, was the massive youth unemployment. Unemployment got to half a million, and that was the scandal in Britain. Half a million is the unemployment, and that's labour isn't working was around that period. Um, then you had mass unemployment, three million, three million. We've got a jobs boom in Britain. You know, give credit to this, give credit to the this government. They've not messed around with the labour market. The labour market reforms labour brought in. We've actually got a jobs boom. We've got a record number of people in employment. Unemployment, for my generation, was like the question, and I think uh, that now the question of our generation, the question facing the, gener- the current generation, is inequality, mm-hmm. equality, inequality, in all the different ways that is, and that for me is one of the frustrations of the debate in Scotland on uh, the debate here on Brexit, that we're having these debates about things which I, re- you know, I think Brexit is a disaster. I don't think it'll help us solve any of our problems. But we've got real problems and no one's talking about them, whether it's housing, you know, something, as I was talking to um, a Tory advisor, a former Tory advisor yesterday, uh, who said to me, competitive markets are the only way to generate wealth. We all know that. But there's something deeply broken uh, in, uh, in our system when my wife is a primary school teacher and the house we live in is 20 times her salary. Oh, my God. Um, and it's like, you know, we, we, they could buy the house because he doesn't work yeah. in primary school teaching. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, so what's, what you know, something's broken in our social model yeah. when in bits of the southeast outside London, the only people who can afford to be public sector workers, in a sense, are those whose partners, mm. wives or husbands, work in a high-paid city job. That our system is our system is both bro- you know there's bits that are working and bits that are broken, and the challenge of the Corbynism of, of Corbinism is, they have got I think really bad uh, proposed policy solutions for our real fundamental problems, um, and the, the the most terrifying thing for me at the moment is who are the who are the politicians who can speak up for capitalism with a strong voice and honest heart. It used to be Tony and Gordon, but they're not on the scene anymore. The Tory party used to uh, defend capitalism, and you know, Boris Johnson just dismisses business. Mm. Um, it's like, so that's a worrying thing. You get, we've got an anti-business culture, which the Tories aren't stopping, which the Corbyn are around. That's a big thing to remember. Three out of four people in Britain work for private companies. It's like it's not like it's other people, it's us. <laughs> um, The three of us in this room, actually, don't work in the public sector. (laughs) It's like, so... So that's... If I'm I'm worried about something in politics, it's that there are some fundamental things that need fundamentally
1: talking about. And all kinds of other things have been talked about. How would you define your own politics? Are you a a market socialist? Are you a social democratic? (laughs) You know, how would you define your own Labour politics?
0: So I try to never use the word socialism because, to be honest... Socialism has always been used as offering an alternative economic model to capitalism, and there isn't one. There isn't one that works. There definitely is one that doesn't work. Yep. Um. And it has been tried, (laughs) despite what people say. It has been tried in various forms, and, uh, you know, so I'm a social democrat. In some contexts, I say I'm a progressive. Uh, In others, I I will always say, like, on social media, I will always say I'm a radical because I've got radical views uh, uh, on migration. Uh, I've got radical views uh, on welfare and social security. I don't like being put in, put in, a, in a kind of box that you, you... you know. The one thing I hate being told is, you're from the right of the Labour Party. I know the right of the Labour Party, and I respect the right of the Labour Party, but it was not Roy Hattersley that got me into politics. He got me active in politics. He, he, uh, his writings do not float to my boat. Um, it's, you know... I still think uh, that the man who I still call the boss, Tony Blair, he still he still you know he still scrupulously sets out the kind of politics I'm in favour of, which is you know there's a, it's a continental slogan, but I think it works for me, which is um, markets where possible,
1: government where necessary. Well, why not? Just I mean that would be a lovely place to end. But what are your radical views on migration?
0: Uh, so I'm. I'm actually an open borders kind of guy. I believe in. Fr- I, I believe that the worst thing, the single worst thing uh, that the Labour Party are arguing for in the Brexit talks, is controls over freedom of movement of labour, and that's because I believe in free movement of capital, and I think that should be balanced by free movement of labour. Yeah. I'm not saying we had to have borders open to anybody in the world who wants to come here, but I'm saying setting arbitrary targets of people coming here. I used to, in the, I I talked to to try and persuade Tory supporters uh, in the Brexit campaign to vote to remain. I said, look, there's two things I want, there's two arguments I want to make to you. One of them is, um, why don't you want to stay in the European Union to finish Margaret Thatcher's work? (laughs) The single market's not completed. Let's finish her most radical and successful piece of work. And the second thing I'd say is, I know you and people like you go on about migration, why do people come to britain not france because we're about like shouldn't you be proud of the fact yes. that people want to come? like they come here because they want to live in Britain because there's something about our values and our lifestyle yeah. and we have got the strongest anti-racist legislation uh in europe uh we've got we've got a, a city uh, london definitely you know back in the was it in the 70s or 80s that atlanta in georgia took head on the issue of race and went you know the brand itself as the the city too busy to hate well, I think London's a city too busy to hate. Were the struggles in the 80s? Yes, there were. Did the National Front have to get stopped? Yes. Did the BNP have to get stopped? Yes. Are we a great, tolerant, diverse city because of the struggles? Yes. Um, so I'm kind of, uh, I, you know, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong uh, with the Brexit uh, voting parts of Britain that wouldn't be solved by a very large um, number of migrants going to live there permanently.
1: Oh, well, I'm so glad I asked, because that's a, a far more hopeful uh, message to end on. John, always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for coming in and well, being our special 100th episode guest. Thanks very much. Well, there you go. John McTurnan, a guest worth waiting a 100 or 101 shows for. Absolutely superb. I mean, there was, on the Cash for Honours thing... I could have just talked to him about that for hours. And I I did think maybe we could do another one where we talk about it in even more detail. But maybe that is too macabre and, and too harrowing, but... Oh, my word. The effect it had on people. Remarkable. Uh, But all his other observations and all his other experiences in Australia and Scotland and the UK, he's just such a a brilliant political thinker and a great talker. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm sure you did. You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. You can come and see me live. Three shows left on the tour, the Brexit Through the Gift Shop tour. We'll... um, finally come to an end, although it's been extended a couple of times and I would like to thank the government for their mishandling of Brexit which has allowed me to do that um, so they those dates are Saturday the 18th of May in Chorley Friday the 24th of May in Camberley and Saturday the 25th of May in London at the Bloomsbury Theatre on that bank holiday May weekend, what better way to uh, enjoy the the, the heatwave than being indoors listening to comedy about Brexit, <laughs> Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn Um Again, uh, thank you so much for downloading this. Please do share. Tell your friends about it. Leave a review on iTunes. That really does help. Hit subscribe. And I'll see you in a week. Ta-ra.